I'm Abby Kinney, and you are listening to Upzone. Hello, everyone. Thank you for listening to another episode of Upzone, a show where we take one big story from the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation and we upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kenny, an urban planner in Kansas City, and joining me today is my friend Chuck Marone, founder of Strong Towns. Hiya. Should we talk about the weather? Hey. <laughs> We've had the, I don't know if this has reached as far south as you, but we've had these fires in Manitoba and we've been in haze all week. And and to the point where my dog was coughing, like asthma kind of coughing. Oh um, no. Yeah. Like really thick. Looking at it, it's not nearly as bad as like the people in Oregon and Washington experienced last year who were very close to it. This has blown over a long distance, but there's something going on where like it's suppressing the movement of it and then driving it like down lower in the atmosphere. And so we actually had points where like the tops of trees had like smoke that had drifted in. And so it was very stifling all week. It's kind of starting to clear up now. And uh, hopefully, you know, the winds will shift and hopefully the fires will die down. But I mean, it's terribly dry all over. And yeah, not been a very nice week. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. I, I'm not sure that it has gone this far south Although maybe I just haven't noticed it being inside for this part of the year. It's pretty hot. <laughs> it is dry, and I can't tell if it's uh, from fires or not. We don't use air conditioning unless it's really bad. So we leave it off all the time. And this week it's been in the 70s and lower 80s, and we've had the air on every day because we just can't open the – have had the windows closed. Yeah. So, and, you know, for me, it's it's been easy uh, for people like my office mate here who – works mornings out on a farm picking stuff has just been horrible because it's, you know, you're outside all day and it's really, they've got, in Minnesota, we rarely have the bad air warnings that you get in other parts of the country. And this week it's been the highest level of whatever that we've ever had. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I hope that it passes quickly for you guys so that you can go out outside uh, on the boat. Hopefully. Yeah, on the boat. I, I hope the I hope whoever's struggling in Manitoba with fires that alleviates too at some point. So, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Well, um, the article that we are going to be covering today is incredibly interesting to me. It's published by CBS News by Don Patisse and entitled "Climate Change Focus Moves to the Suburbs as Cities Continue to Sprawl." Can I so, do one quick correction? Yeah. It, you said CBS News. I don't know if you caught that. It's actually oh, no. CBC News. It's out oh. of Canada. Yeah. So thank you. Yeah. No, I just, I, I wanted to make sure people, like, this is a Canadian story, but I think it has a ton of ramifications for us. But uh, yeah, CBC, this is their uh, national news media. My uh, silly American brain automatically yeah. corrected <laughs> Transposed, it. <the> CBS. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's all good. Well, so the article basically begins by explaining how urban places are incredibly ecologically beneficial. It's a long-established principle of environmental economics that the traditional development pattern provides the kind of efficiency needed to decrease resource use on a per capita and a per acre basis. The traditional urban development pattern basically makes 
multimodal transportation options work because not every trip requires an individual to use a car. It enables greater efficiency of infrastructure, namely, uh, in this case, sewage and energy systems. And it also uh, takes pressure off the surrounding natural areas that are central for keeping our environment healthy. So the article claims that COVID-19 has actually shifted consumer interests from cities back to suburbs. Data shows that in many large cities, people are moving out of dense urban areas due to the pandemic. And in Canada specifically, Toronto and Montreal experienced record high population losses to the surrounding areas. This is creating new market pressure that is expected to add momentum to the suburban sprawl trend. So now some Canadian uh, researchers are advocating that we shift climate change focus from cities to suburbia, saying that the reality is that Canada and the United States will continue to trend towards sprawl after the COVID-19 pandemic and that the only pragmatic solution would be to develop policy to mitigate the worst impacts of suburban and exurban sprawl. So Chuck, when I saw this article, I felt like we had to cover it because I think that we need to break up the article based on first the premise that is being set up here, uh, where they're kind of, they're, they're basically saying that markets are heading a certain way and we should kind of give up on trying to set up a an urban development pattern as kind of an underlying layer of sustainability and we should just try to mitigate the suburban development pattern. Um, and then I do want to talk about the viability of actually implementing that. So, you know, what what were your first thoughts when you were reading this article? I'm really curious. I want to key in on something you said. I like to think of you and I as, as peers, but there is a small bit of a generation gap between us. And I think it just came out in one way. And I, I want to hone in on something and I want to kind of reflect it back to you before we dig too far into this. You said that cities as, as being environmentally beneficial is, and I wrote this down, a long established principle. And I find that fascinating because I think in your career, that is probably true. I think that in general, we've come to recognize that building cities and not spreading out across the countryside is a better approach for the environment than you know what we did post-World War II, where we just bisected everything, every habitat, every you know natural space with roadways and, and continue to build outward. That is not a long-established principle in my lifetime. And in fact, my early career, I graduated from the University of Minnesota in 1995. I would say 1995, the, the, the dominant notion of environmentalism was still along the lines that engineers would summarize as dilution is the solution to pollution. The more you spread people out, the, the, the more environmentally sensitive it would be. And, you know, uh, people who are advocating for cities, and I will point to Cade Benfield, who was with the NRDC back then, Natural Resources Defense Council. He was widely vilified by some in the environmental movement for calling for huge amounts of investment in cities and calling for more people to move to cities because there was this underlying thought in the environmental movement that cities are the cause of the problem. 
cities are creating all this runoff. They're creating all this sewage. They're creating all this uh, demand for water. They have all these cars, pollution. It's a late recognition to the environmental movement that the opposite is actually true. If, if you can put 10,000 people in a city, you can actually manage and mitigate and deal with all those issues. You actually have the financial capacity to do it. You have the wherewithal to do it. You have the momentum to do it. If you take those 10,000 people and you spread them out in, on one acre lots or half acre lots or five acre lots or whatever across the countryside, you are diluting the pollution in a sense. So it's less detectable on a point source basis, but you are creating vastly more of it uh, over the long run. And the cumulative effect is just enormous. And so I wanted to key in on that because I, I do think that we can often take for granted in our conversation, you know, you and me, but also people who listen to this podcast and, and, and kind of the urbanist conversation about how the environmental movement today reflects that urban centric kind of value. But I'm 48 and I'm telling you that people who are my age and older do not necessarily have that as their base understanding. That That is something that they've either newly come to or would resist. And, and I think that that is actually playing out with a lot of the policies that are discussed in this article. Well, that's fascinating to me that that is not a principle that, you know, seems long established to you. And maybe that will make people feel better that somebody who's in their 20s believes that that's a long established principle. Because, I mean, to me, it is, it's a rational principle because it's about level of service needed to support our society and how much energy we're using and how efficiently we're able to use it. And and cities and the traditional development pattern to me is a very obviously efficient way of using resources. Um, you know, on the other end of things, rural uh, development patterns uh, can also be efficient depending on the level of service needed to support it. Uh, very, so, very rural, right? Yeah, very rural. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, you know, people who are living very self-sufficiently um, in, in the countryside. So the suburban development pattern to me is really where you have this kind of over uh, reliance on resources with an inefficient development pattern, which is what this article is kind of talking about. At least it's what I believe they're talking about, right? They're they're discussing sprawl. I suppose it could be dense sprawl or it could just be a typical suburban expansion out on the edge. And so they're kind of trying to make a case for ways to mitigate some of the worst aspects of that development pattern. But really quickly, I do want to address the premise that they're kind of putting out there. Because when I read this article, I immediately took issue with this premise. And I feel like they are jumping to conclusions a little bit prematurely because the data is, is first of all, cited in Canada, which quite frankly, in the past year was a place that had some of the most severe impacts related to coronavirus, right? Their cities had to have very strict lockdowns, stores had to close, people couldn't really go to public spaces, you know, just without being really worried about the pandemic. And I think that, you know, this is something that is not permanent and is kind of being treated like it is permanent. Because I think that if you're living in a city and um, you're living there for the services that are offered and the vibrancy and the culture and people, 
and suddenly that's kind of shut down for a year and you're paying an exorbitantly high housing price, it's pretty rational that people may choose to migrate somewhere else for the year and kind of try to ride this out. And for some people, that may be a permanent relocation, but I have a hard time believing that that is just permanently, you know, a strike on the cities that exist and that nobody will ever come back. I don't know that that's a a rational conclusion to get to when, when it's really only been a year. Let me try to address two aspects of the premise, because I I see what you're getting at, and I I think we agree on this, but I I feel like there's some nuance. The the first one is, I think a lot of urban advocates want to insist that the pandemic should have no impact on the desirability of cities. And to me, that just belies everything that history teaches us and, and everything that we can see. Clearly, my friends who were in dense urban cities struggled more and had a more difficult time than I did living in a small town. I think people who were living in suburbs actually had even less of a struggle. I have a a small yard, I have a park, but I have a a very low density city. And it's very easy for me to walk around and not run into people and and have social distancing and what have you. Small town life is, is, you know, the pandemic was very gentle on us. I know friends who lived in 700 square foot apartments in Manhattan who were actually felt like they could not leave their home and had kids. And it was like lunacy. It was insanity. Like, I I don't know how you would do that. And so I do think the idea and, and, you know, even today, like I was flying last week, I flew to Memphis, you know, back to wearing masks on airplanes. uh, That's never gone away, but it's gone away for me because I haven't been flying. Now I'm flying, I'm wearing masks. I'm talking to people who say, yeah, if you go to a big city, uh, you used to wear masks on the subway and the bus, but you don't wear it walking down the sidewalk. This is a very different life and very different experience than I have in my small town. And I think it's very rational that people would, would choose to move away from one and toward the other. That being said, I think this idea that we see in the short term, these trends like, oh, there's there's this exodus from the city now and there's all this... Uh, building and energy and people moving to the suburbs. I think that that would be logical in really any economic dislocation the way we had. Because look at how we reacted to this pandemic. We reacted to the pandemic economically by propping up every existing system that we had. The Federal Reserve bought 40 to $60 billion of mortgage-backed securities every month. Every, every mortgage that was made during the pandemic or sold during the pandemic was bought by the Federal Reserve. So every suburban house was subsidized with massively low interest rates. We pumped all this money into keeping like the traditional businesses afloat. I wrote about Cheesecake Factory, but as kind of an analog for everything else that is like the accoutrement of suburbia, we, we said none of this is allowed to fail. We are going to prop all of this up with everything we have. And so basically we said in a very giant way that if you live a suburban American life, we are going to make that as pain-free as possible during this economic dislocation. We're going to subsidize your home. We're going to subsidize your shopping. We're going to subsidize your transportation. We are going to give you money to exist in this place. And yeah, I mean, people are going to move there. Like That's not even difficult to me. 
going along with that, we said, we're going to cut funding for transit. We're going to uh, reduce bus schedules. We're going to reduce train schedules. We're going to shut down the theaters. We're going to shut down uh, the play productions. We're not going to let people outside without very stringent. We're not going to even let you in the park. You can't go in the park. Right. So <laughs> I, I feel like this all is something that is real and I don't think we should deny that this migration is real, but I also think that it is not really a factor as much of personal preference as it is price point preference, right? Like we, if we were not subsidizing everything the way we are, if the entire strip of junk franchises and stores went out of business like they should have in a normal economy and we're not bailed out by the system, it would stink to live here today. Right. And and basically, I think the point that we're both getting at are the distortions that cause not only suburban areas to continue to expand, but also for people's preference to be driven a certain way. Because over the past year, you know, if, if you're paying a very high housing price to live in a place due to its location because it's a vibrant city and then suddenly you can't even go to the park and there's all these restrictions, it's completely logical that you now have an incentive to go somewhere else. So that to me seems very rational. And, you know, it just seems that it's another distortion that's kind of being laid on top of the, you know, bucket of distortions that's really driving all of these things that have been covered on strong towns really extensively. There's, I mean, from the local, state, and federal funding decisions and regulations, there's all of these different reasons why we've continued to expand suburbs. And at the same time, we've made it very difficult to actually build where existing uh, infrastructure exists. So there were reasons that people were leaving cities prior to the pandemic. And a big reason is the rising cost of living that's forcing people to live out on the edge. Not everybody who is moving to a suburban area is moving to that 4,000 square foot suburban house. So I think it's a little bit disingenuous to abandon focus on places that have an existing infrastructure network and capacity to thicken up uh, for continued urban or exurban expansion. If we're not addressing those distortions that limit the creation of housing in existing places, then we're basically just stretching out our growth capacity and expanding the long-term infrastructure liabilities, which you know very well. And I think that the environmentalists that are thinking of shifting their focus on um, continued sprawl should really consider that all of the different distortions that are driving that uh, beyond just market preference. Yeah. There is a pragmatic part of the environmentalist movement broadly that I respect and appreciate. And then there's another part that I think gets trapped in, in like a delusion feedback loop that I just find maddening and frustrating. Let's focus on the former because I, I think it's it's a more productive thing. Th there is a strain of thought that says, you know, people live in suburbs today. Uh, they're going to continue to live in suburbs. And the trends show, you know, unless we are going to uh, change a bunch of things policy-wise, which seem kind of tough, uh, unless we're going to experience an economic uh, type of dislocation or collapse or, or, or other type of failure, 
that these trends are going to continue and we're going to continue to build suburbs and we're going to continue to build all this. So, so what we should do is we should overlay that with, uh, you know, and I'm going to use air quotes here, green. Um, we should have electric vehicles. Uh, we should have solar panels and we should have uh, windmills and we should, um, you know, uh, basically add the uh, the accessories to the suburban development pattern that would be environmentally less impactful. I get the pragmatism at the heart of that, right? Uh, I mean, Jesus said, you go where the sinners are. And I'm not calling people who live in suburbs sinners. But in the context of environmental sins, you have to, in a sense, like deal with the place that is causing the issue. Like I get it. And you can't do it by, let me pick on my daughters for a minute. Uh, you know, my daughters are, are 16 and 14. They're growing up in, a, in an age of environmental consciousness and, and protect the earth and climate change. And these words come out of their lips very easily and freely. And then in the next sentence, they say, Dad, can we borrow the car to drive to Starbucks to get a coffee? And I point out Starbucks is eight blocks away. They could walk. And they say, we don't, you know, we don't walk to Starbucks. We need to, the car. I, I think, you know, there's a certain pragmatism that looks at that transaction and says, get those girls into an electric vehicle, lower their overall impact. I tend to, in my kind of cheap way, uh, just reject that notion and say, you should walk to the damn Starbucks, you know, and actually you should not walk to the Starbucks. That's eight blocks away. You should walk to the corner coffee shop that's owned by our neighbor that is only five blocks away, but it doesn't have your, you know, whatever macado latte frou-frou thing that you get with your friends. I think that this is something that the environmentalists are pragmatic about I think if they understood the economics a little bit better and actually were, uh, and I'm going to say this, this is really broad and, and there's going to be a lot of people who might get mad about this, but I think if they entwine themselves less with an anti-capitalist, pro-socialist kind of mindset and actually said, how do market forces work to drive this behavior? They would be less interested in subsidizing uh, housing and subsidizing uh, electric vehicles and subsidizing electricity as a way to create kind of the utopia they dream of. And they would be more active in saying, how do we stop subsidizing this stuff and let the market drive traditional development patterns, which would be environmentally far better for us? Yes. And that's why, you know, this discussion around distortions, I think, is, is very important because. I don't believe that the suburban development pattern as we know it would be possible without all of these different distortions. I think there's a lot of people who would agree with that statement uh, who study this issue. And so I wish that the environmentalists would take a closer look at that kind of discussion because I believe that it is fundamental to some of the things that they, that they claim to care about. And you know, I, I do appreciate that in this article, there is kind of a nod to development pattern as a way of addressing um, expansion and trying to make it basically, they, they say just make better suburbs. And some of the suggestions that they give for that, um, you know, includes the green infrastructure, protecting ecological assets, but it also includes things like um, expanding housing diversity within neighborhoods and platting light, lots more efficiently and 
you know, more efficient building practices. They also talk about, you know, suburbs having their own business centers and commercial centers so that people can actually live more locally and that they're not commuting long distances. So I think that all of those things are all well and good as an aspiration. Um, They're basically just describing like streetcar suburbs or villages rather than building subdivisions, which I, I think that that is a good target if you are going to build out on the edge. It doesn't hurt to build more coherently, certainly. And maybe it's not an either or kind of discussion, but I, I do think that having a coherent development pattern and an efficient development pattern is fundamental to this entire conversation and all of the things that you can add on top of that, um, electric vehicles, nuclear energy or wind energy, whatever the kind of energy um, innovation we have access to in the future, uh, more efficient building uh, practices. All of those things are kind of in addition to development pattern from my perspective. Right. You said the word that should be on the environmentalist lips today, and really, I think it's rarely spoken, and that is village. The environmentalist vision for the suburbs should be villages. That, that's what it looks like. And in a village, you, you would still have a car, and it can be an electric car, and I think that's great, but it would be an electric car that you would use to get to the next village which is not something you would need to do an awful lot because your village would have the things that you would use in a village uh, on a day-to-day basis. Um, we can we can t- say village slash neighborhood. We talked last week about the idea of complete neighborhoods and and how when we build vertical suburbs in the in the core of cities or horizontal suburbs on the edge, uh, we're doing the same kind of thing and having uh, a, a different. A mix of things in a neighborhood is essential to making it prosperous long-term. I think the energy of the environmentalism movement should be right now today, almost entirely around building villages. How do we make this very uh, ecologically destructive approach to living? You said this in our pre-conversation, this very high burn way of living. And I think there's a high burn the suburbs assume, I wrote this in my in my first book, the suburbs assume an ongoing level of affluence. It is a high burn financially way to live. It's very costly over time. It also has high burn in terms of environmental consequences. It requires a high level of ecological inputs and a high level of ecological damage in order to sustain that pattern over time. Cities do not, and and villages in particular, that neighborhood style of development does not. And I think that if if we're going to have a serious environmental policy, and I think we need a serious environmental policy, it has to center around village life. And that is something you don't hear very often, and you certainly didn't get from this article, which really kind of leans more towards, let's do electric vehicles and windmills and... and uh, all the, what Steve Mozan would call the gizmo green stuff, the gadget green. Yeah. And, you know, a low burn way of living is literally a way of living. And I don't think that, you know, village lifestyle is limited to people who are living in downtowns of major metros. I think people who are living in small towns uh, have a low burn 
lifestyle. I think that people who are living in urban neighborhoods have a low burn lifestyle. So it's not it's not um, exclusive to downtowns. And I think that when these kinds of discussions come up, a lot of people tend to think that we're just talking about everybody living in the downtown and everybody needs to live in a 300 square foot apartment. And that's exactly not what we're talking about. And that's yeah, you, not, that's not village life, is it? Right. I, I think that your neighborhood is, is closer and certainly more adaptable than mine, even to getting to this point. I mean, you, you can, you can live without a car. I can live without a car as well, but mine's a little bit more challenging than yours would be. I think the idea of having, maybe the way to think of it is like a car alternate neighborhood where you're not saying like you can't have a car and you shouldn't have a car and you shouldn't ever drive. But, you know, going back to my daughters, I mean, the idea that we would somehow prop up a transaction at Starbucks on the edge of town uh, when there's a, a great coffee shop within a few blocks that you know is difficult to walk to because of the highway that runs through the middle of the neighborhood. I mean that is the that is the pushback they would give me is that dad it's a terrible walk and that is true it is a terrible walk at least two blocks of it are horrible. Um you know the the idea that we wouldn't lean into that uh, that shift in a place like yours and in a place like mine and 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 really the thousands of places that look exactly like that across North America. Um, I think we're overlooking the opportunity to do something really uh, re that would really move the environmental ball forward, it, it really into the next kind of generation. I, I started this by saying dilution is a solution to pollution was really coming out of the 1970s environmentalism movement and, and all that. That was how it manifested in the NEPA laws and everything else. I think we've learned a lot since then, and I think we could do so much better but it's going to have to be from the bottom up. It, it's not going to be these kind of big top down, let's build out the electric car fleet because that will get us to green. Yeah, exactly. I think that it's really just about building better places and retrofitting places that aren't quite there to be better places. You know, it's, I, I think that's fundamentally how you get there because it, it's about individual lifestyles and making things feel natural for people and not, you know, forcing them into a uh, completely changing lifestyle. But there needs to be some way of, you know, providing options for people so that their lifestyle is not so high burn rate. And I think that there, there are things that are beyond development pattern that kind of layer on top of this that come out of this past year, you know, people working from home, that that could be a potential for lowering the carbon emissions of people. And, you know, I, I think that there there are opportunities and maybe one day we'll just be able to teleport and we won't be have to have this conversation. <laughs> well, I'm very fortunate in my life. My wife and I are both professionals and, and, you know, make decent incomes in a city of people who mostly don't make decent incomes. But even with that, I am very cheap and we live a very low burn lifestyle. I feel like we live large in this place. And from an environmental standpoint, it is, it is you know, far less intensive than, uh, you know, most people who live, anybody who lives in the surrounding area and drives in every day. It's, it's, it's a tiny fraction of that. And I feel like we live, you know, the best lives we've ever had in this low burn way. It's not about a lesser lifestyle, right? It's actually about just like using those resources a little bit differently. 
most of us are living like kings compared to people living who like lived kings. 100 years ago yeah. or people yeah. living in other countries. So I'm I'm thankful every day. And Me too. It's, you know, we have a lot to be grateful for. No so. doubt. No doubt. I think that every day, Abby, I actually get up and that's like one of the first thoughts in my head is that, wow, do I have a life to be thankful for. Yeah. Yeah. Waking up in a bed with air conditioning. Yeah. <laughs> I mean- <laughs> That alone <laughs> is pretty awesome. So, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, well, let's leave it at that at that point because I feel like that is uh, an optimistic place to leave this conversation. I think it's really interesting. I'd love to see um, an environmental researcher on the Strong Towns podcast to talk a little bit more about this because I think it's an interesting topic. Maybe I can see if I make that happen. Yeah. I don't know who that would be, but maybe maybe somebody listening has a suggestion. So we are going to do the down zone, which is the part of this show where we can share anything that we have been watching, reading, listening to, anything that's been capturing our attention lately. So Chuck, what do you have for us today? So we ended that optimistically, so then I'll take it in a different direction. <laughs> Here um, we go. <laughs> no, I, I have resisted uh, reading the book, The Fourth Turning, for a long time. Oh, and I've, really? I've, I've resisted reading it because, largely because the, the people who have brought it to my attention have been people who I feel like are cheering on the uh, apocalypse of the fourth turning. Like they're like, I, you know, a, a little bit like the crazed fanatic, you know, who's like, I want the world to end because then, you know, the kingdom will come or whatever. Like whatever you think. The next thing coming is, and you're like hasten the uh, the apocalypse so you can experience that. There, there's a little bit of that vibe with the people who have shared the fourth turning with me, and I've kind of resisted listening, you know, reading it. Um, I bought it on audiobook. It's very quick. It's very easy. I actually slowed it down to one and a half speed because it was a lot for my brain to absorb very quickly. I loved the simplicity of the seasons. The thing that makes it a very powerful book is that it's so obvious and intuitive once you get into it. The idea that you know the boomers have uh, affected the way that my generation, Generation X, was raised, the way Generation X was raised affects how we raise our kids. Our kids, you know, millennials have been affected, and they will raise their and and it creates this kind of cycle dynamic where everyone is affecting everyone else in a different way that doesn't necessarily drive events, but drives our response to events. I have long thought, and I love individual baby boomers, uh, but I've long thought that individual baby boomers collectively as a group see the world in a very warped way. They see a world in a, in a very like boomer-centric way. And all of our policies are basically designed to prop up a boomer lifestyle and a boomer view of the world. And I've, I've thought that as they fade away into less powerful positions and others take over, not my generation, but the millennials after us, uh, you're going to get a very different uh, set of policies, ones that don't transfer wealth from young people to old people the way our current policies do. The fourth turning really explained why that transition happens and how it works that way. And I'm just, I'm grateful for having read the book. I, I, I think it is an interesting way to look at the world and I'd recommend it to anybody. Okay. Well, you've convinced me. I will also read it. I've, I've heard it. I've heard about it. I've heard it explained. 
I just haven't gotten to the point of actually buying it and getting it on audiobook. So I'll probably have to listen to it at regular speed if you're listening to it at, at <laughs> one, one and a quarter speed. Sure. <laughs> well, I don't have much to share. I have just been incredibly busy lately. So I've kind of been all over the place. We did just get kayaks. Which I saw your photos. Yeah. Uh Yep. It's something that we've been talking about getting for such a long time. And, you know, it's one of those purchases where it's it's expensive enough that you really need to push yourself to go buy it. And we found a really good deal on Facebook Marketplace, as always, and um, picked them up and took them out and caught a uh, white bass on the lake. And nice. yeah, we're going to be taking them out this weekend too. So I'm, I'm so happy. I'm pretty excited. Yeah. It's, it's a game changer. So hopefully I don't stop biking and, uh, I need to make sure I have a balance because the kayaks are really, really fun. So now if you're a water person, you know, there is this magical place. It's the land of 10,000 lakes. Uh, it's called Minnesota. <laughs> And you can go to a lake every day and you'll really like never get to all of them. So you, you should, uh, you should really consider it. We, we welcome you up here with your kayaks and your mountain bikes. Well, you realize that Missouri has a pretty strong lake culture as well. We also are a lake people. So <laughs> yeah. well, we, we can debate the intensity of our lake culture. Yeah. Um, we don't have to go to we we don't have to go to ours to escape the chiggers and the uh, oppressive heat and all that. We can just go enjoy ours and in, in its in its bounty. That's a good point. I will say that the one <laughs> the one thing that's kind of a bummer about kayaks is that you really aren't escaping the oppressive heat. You're just mm. out in the heat and next to water, so yeah, you're you're still burning when you're out on the lake. So, but it oh, is, I'll keep working it is on fun. You. Yeah, it is fun. We'll uh, we'll have to when you come to Kansas City, maybe we can go kayaking. I would love it. I love fish. kayaking. Yeah, it's a blast. Awesome, cool. Well, thanks for joining me today, Chuck. Hey, thanks, Abby. You know what I was just going to tell you? Yeah, I, I forgot. I, I I don't want to delay like any long. So I'm take my family and I are taking a vacation next month. And uh, I've planned this vacation literally for 16 years. We we're supposed to do it last year. Because <laughs> uh, when my kids were born, I'm like, this is what we're doing when they turn 16. Now she's 17, and we're going to go to Rome and Venice. And we are going to kayak the canals in Venice. Amazing. Yeah. I'm going to take pictures and give them to you. So I, yes. I'm so psyched. Because my kids like to kayak too. And I'm like, we're going to Venice. Would you guys be interested in kayaking? And they're like, yes. So I didn't even know you could wow. do that. And I came across it and I'm like, that is what my family is doing. So yes, yeah. that, that sounds like so much fun. I'm incredibly no fascinated. Yeah. No, like singing songs and all that. Like they, no? romantic people can do that. My, I have a hearty family and we wish to kayak <laughs> the canals. <laughs> oh, well, watch yeah. out, Italy. The Maroons yeah. are coming to kayak. On their way. Yeah. All right. Awesome. Take care. Cool. Take care, and thank you everyone for listening to another episode of UpZoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, Chuck. (laughs) Bye-bye.